Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. First things first, if you're listening to this as a podcast, that's all fine and dandy. But we do air these on YouTube as well. And if you're watching on YouTube, hey, you're looking good today. Thanks for joining us. So thank you for tuning in to the newest episode. And without further ado, I need to introduce the fountain of truth, Jeffrey Can. Thank you, Jeffrey. Welcome back to the show. Always great to make an appearance on the show. Thanks so much. Of course. And as you know, by this point, this is no standalone podcast. It's for, well, don't have my copy of Bits, Bites, and Barrels, because actually I was reading it last night. It's still on my nightstand. It's nice to record these, get that supplemental information, and really build off of it with the book. And for 10 bucks, you can't go wrong yourself. We'll definitely give you some links at the end of the show. So that's enough with the introductions. For now, let's get into the topic today, autonomous technology. Now, we did do an episode on AI. Jeffrey, what is the difference between these two? Well, the way to think about autonomous technologies is uh, think about that as drones and robots. So it's equipment that operates or can carry out a series of tasks uh, largely in, an, in, a, in a way that is, uh, w- does not require direct hands-on human supervision. All righty. And then do you have some examples that might help illustrate those differences between, say, AI and autonomous that people may be familiar with? Oh, sure. I mean, the easiest one to think about in an in a, in a autonomous technology would be a, an aerial drone. Flies around uh, by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, the, the, the second-by-second um, requirement of an, a drone to deal with things like slight differences in, um, in say, the, a wind activity while it's flying. Uh, the drone has the capabilities on board to uh, adapt and adjust to that uh, in in uh, by itself. Doesn't require a human to be able to, to to need to do that. On the other side, though, if you want to send the drone in a specific direction, uh, consumer drones like what we all are used to in kind of our our consumer lives, we have to you know have a controller somewhere that kind of steers the drone in the direction we wish to go. But in in other applications, military applications and industrial applications, very often these drones uh, can navigate their own way in the real world and do not need a, a human driver, if you like, at, at the controls all of the time. And that's a, a, how autonomous technologies are unfolding in, in our industrial landscape. Think about them as, as robots that, mm-hmm. that uh, you'd see in an auto plant, you know, assembling vehicles, except uh, autonomous technologies these days are just much more sophisticated. Yeah. So clearly one of those advantages is that you need less human oversight. Are there other advantages that we can mention? And on the other side of the coin, disadvantages? Well, the main advantages to autonomous tools and technologies are the ability to send them into places that are hard for humans to survive in. So deep underwater, uh, high up in the atmosphere, or in in dangerous settings such as uh, inside a a tank that has uh, uh, no no, um, presence of noxious vapors or maybe poor ventilation or is dark. Uh, the, 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 we, we go through enormous energy to, and elaborate um, uh, activities to ready people to actually go into these settings so that they can be safe. Uh, whereas with autonomous technologies, you, many of those precautions are unnecessary because you're not securing for oxygen supply, ha- various hazards, uh, uh, and, and, and so autonomous tools can often go in places humans really can't easily go. That doesn't mean that they always should go, but uh, for, for, there are many, many applications now where uh, robot technology is superior to, 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 to humans. Now, where humans are still required or need is where the robot is going to be encountering 
uh, either novel situations for which it is, uh, uh, it is inadequately prepared uh, or uh, situations where uh, uh, a, uh, what, what the robot is expected to encounter is going to be, uh, um, is going to be uh, novel or requires some kind of human judgment to, to be able to get the robot to, to carry out the task at hand. Hmm. And so clearly lots of examples, but what about oil and gas specifically? Is this something that's still pretty young? Because the further we get into this series, the less mature these technologies are going to be. How long has it been used in oil and gas? I'm not sure I could actually uh, say when the first robot was used in oil and gas, but uh, a quick survey of the literature would suggest that uh, uh, oil and gas companies are have been early adopters of robots in in specific instances, and in even even some cases, developers of robots. Uh, they uh, uh, some of the early examples would be robots that would crawl around on the inside of a petroleum tank, a place where you would have you know, stored crude oil or, or uh, gasoline uh, during a turnaround or a maintenance cycle. And, and the, the robot is used to inspect the interior of the tank, looking for corrosion and cracks and, and degradation in, in material integrity. And that is a task that you, know, you could use humans for, but you, the, the tanks, uh, given that they stored petroleum, are, are very, very dangerous. And uh, so um, oil, oil and gas companies have been working on robots to solve for this problem for, uh, for quite some time, years, in fact. But for the most part, if you look at the day-to-day -day of oil and gas as we presently uh, see it, that's everywhere in the supply chain. doesn't matter where you're at, midstream, downstream, maintenance and repair, construction, capital, ro robots are relatively novel. There's, you don't see very many of them yet. Yeah, of course. I mean, definitely it makes sense that you're trying to keep people out of these toxic and dangerous and potentially deadly situations with the use of robots. But what about, Absolutely. say, a remote function? Are we reaching a point where we could, say, uh, direct autonomous technology from onshore and direct the technology on an offshore setting? Yeah, we're very, very close to that. We certainly are already there in aeronautic uh, applications, so uh, drones that fly around and, and inspect a facility from the air that can be done uh, without uh, on an offshore setting, for example. Uh, uh, subsea drones, so doing work on the uh, subsea of the, of the ocean, that technology is, is already uh, in use and being rapidly developed. So uh, at least those two, two applications. Mm -hmm. Where we typically don't see that yet is where the mechanical maintenance activity and the supervision, supervision of a specific asset at a, at a facility uh, uh, presently has the, the requirement for so someone to walk to that location, uh, climbing up and down stairs through narrow passageways, in, inspecting and uh, in investigating uh, the, the integrity of that equipment, that is still very much a human function. Hmm. Uh, I would say though that the, the, we should not underestimate the speed by which these technologies are evolving. There are companies now trialing uh, robots uh, that are surprisingly human-like in their ability to execute uh, what, what human people, uh, humans currently do. Mm -hmm. And then clearly safety huge aspect where it can be improved on huge. but what about everyday routine mundane common tasks we're always looking to make our own lives easier and read a little bit less of an excel spreadsheet can we do that today or does it even move past that uh, well, we're definitely there today. I mean, the development of what we call robotic process automation tools or RPA tools dates back probably 15 years. 
uh, if you went back to you know uh, two thousand early two thousands, uh, well, there was a wave of change that went through the major oil and gas companies shortly after deploying SAP to cope with Y two K related challenges, where the the these enterprise tools allowed. Uh, large or organizations to lift and shift whole functions out of a whole variety of business units and drop them into dedicated facilities and then locate those facilities in uh, jurisdictions that were advantageous, either because the labor cost was low or the telecommunications availability was high. And we call that call centers today, right? When you, when you call you know, just about anybody, yeah. you, where, where are you really phoning? Like, do you think you're phoning uh, Alabama? Probably not. You might be talking, might be in Manila for all you know. So um, um, uh, oil and gas companies lifted and shifted their HR functions and supply chain and all kinds of other functions, uh, OED functions into these uh, call centers and then discovered that applying, uh, call it, uh, uh, think about it as Excel on steroids, macros on steroids, <laughs> they could automate all kinds of functionality that was uh -huh. taking place in, in, those, uh, in those facilities. That technology uh, is has not really been deployed into oil and gas beyond these call center type locations. But in the last uh, 18 months to two years, the interest in this has gone way up as oil and gas companies have been exploring all possible ways to take cost out of the business. And these robotic tools are, are, a, are a fast and easy lever that you could deploy because the technology is 15 years old and, mm. and has been de-risked. And those are definitely, those are robots. They're just executing a process in a robotic fashion. Yeah, I like that interest is actually growing because clearly everyone can benefit from this. But right now, oh, yeah. what is the lifespan? Are we looking at something long enough? Because it has to be long enough for people to use it. Because if they have to implement a new iteration in such a short time span, well, then you can forget about it, right? Well, the, the robot technologies um, are evolving as many of these technologies are on, on Moore's law, which means uh, they are uh, every 18 months or so, they are either doubling in capacity or capability, or they are falling in cost, or their power consumption is, is falling, or their capabilities are just getting better and better. Uh, the ability now to buy a a, a drone you know, that from a you know Walmart that um, you know three years ago would have cost you thousand dollars you can now buy online for a hundred. I mean it's 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 <laughs> this is it's, it's a sort of cost curve is yep. is like that, um, and so the. Yeah, the, the the lifespan of these technologies is short. There's no no doubt about it. Uh, the the uh, the 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 challenge for oil and gas companies, of course, is the the way the industry is set up and structured, and the way it runs, which is a waterfall way of of adapting, evolving, change, is is inconsistent with the speed by which these things um, are evolving. And so the 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 I might turn your question around, <laughs> or turn the question around, which is. It, uh, it, it, are these technologies evolving too fast for oil and gas to adopt them? Another way to look at it is, is oil and gas really too slow to cope Keep with the fact with that the, the world future. is speeding up? And, and the real challenge here is how do we speed up the pace of change in oil and gas? Not uh, do we just simply say, well, don't do with, I don't want to deal with these technologies because they, they, they evolve too quickly. Uh -huh. Yeah, definitely a lazy, lazy mindset if you ask me. But in terms of production specifically... Clearly, safety we've talked about, but are there any other producing assets that can benefit from this? Uh, well, there's some lots of good examples out there. There's two technologies I often use as, as examples to kind of articulate this uh, issue. One is a, a company called Ambient. Uh, that's A-M-B-Y-I-N-T, Ambient Technologies. Ambient has developed a, uh, a, a controller which behaves like a robot. 
Uh, if you imagine, if you, you stare out at oil and gas fields, you'll see what's called a beam pump. It looks like a rocking, also called a rocking horse, but it's a, a mechanical contra contraption, which is uh, lifting um, oil product to the surface. Uh, by uh, through uh, its mechanical uh, motion, and uh, ambient sells a, a controller that straps onto that that pump, and it optimizes the performance of that pump every single stroke. It it makes a decision every stroke how 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 much pressure do I go down, how much pressure do I exercise lifting up, and uh, it, it it turns the this mechanical pump into effectively a robot. It operates autonomously it, it it decides at the site how fast or how slow it should go yeah. and you can program it in response to price of electricity for instance or the price of hydrocarbons or typically it is what is the volume of oil or gas i'm lifting up and how much water is present am i lifting up more water than oil maybe i should slow the thing down oh, oh uh, suddenly i've got a spurt of oil okay start lifting faster the the the, the machine optimizes at that level that's one kind of robot Another one is, is a, 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 a technology called Kelvin, which is, you know, uh, the, the, the temperature Kelvin, K-E-L-V-I-N. And Kelvin has been deployed by British uh, BP in uh, some oil fields in the United States. Kelvin is an artificial intelligence engine uh, that uh, turns the mechanical apparatus of running the oil field into a one large robot. It, it uh, provides the brains to allow the pumps to run at just the right level, to deal with the bottlenecks that happen because your tanks get full or the, the gathering lines are, are full or you have to do some maintenance in one part of the field. So you, you, how do you, what, do you, what do you do with the rest of the field? Uh, so the Kelvin optimizes all of that play uh, for, the, for, the, for the whole of the oil field, which is a, uh, you know, a very, very, it turns the field effectively into one gigantic robot. And that's great because I cannot tell you how many times for class we had to look in production at artificial lift curves and see, oh, how can we improve this pump? Now that's a useless skill. By the time I get to that point, there will be a robot doing it. But we'll talk more about job replacement and job security later. I'm curious right now to know what infrastructure needs to exist. When we talked about the Internet of Things, it said you said we always needed electricity and a network. Is it the same for this or is it site dependent? Could we maybe get away with just electricity to power a robot? Well, you still need you still need power, and and power has to come from somewhere, and that does not change, and uh, so power is still a requirement. Communications is a bit less of a, a critical driver. It's still important, but it's less of a critical driver because by virtue of a, a robot being autonomous, it, that is to say, it, it it operates on its own. From time to time, it can be disconnected from a network and and continue to operate. And in fact, there are. Uh, examples where, again, back to ambient, where the, the network is sporadic. Uh, imagine uh, your, your facility is way off the grid. There's no, there's no <laughs> telecommunications network. What can you do? Well, you could connect to the occasional satellite that passes overhead. But those satellites might only be overhead for uh, 15 minutes a day. And so uh, the, the, imagine a, a, a scenario where your kit, your gear at that well site, uh, is operating as it as it should, and then during that 15 minutes, it's uploading all the data from the past 24 hours, downloading any uh, software updates. Maybe it's a, for a beam pump, it's a new um, new a new curve. You're downloading that. You're downloading the lessons from all of the other similar pumps. Uh, any patches for security or cyber issues, yeah. any uh, operating system upgrades, all get downloaded in that little window. So, so, the, so do, you, do you need the network? Yes. Does it have to be pervasive and there all the time? No. No. 
And can that be done in 15 minutes, say, when that satellite's overhead? Or are we looking at a rate of technology increase that is, well, accumulating enough data that we are outpacing the use of satellite or satellites improving too? No, it's all, all, all of these technologies are improving. And, and, and yeah, so back to that question, is the 15 minute window enough? <laughs> uh, it, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. And uh, so that's not, not really seen uh, as a critical block or barrier to the to, to, to deployment of that technology out in the field. Yeah. The bigger block is the fact that it is running for 23 and a half hours where you, the, the uh, supervisory um, level can't see it because it's not on the network. And that creates some angst with asset managers who, you know, the, the model is you always have eyes on you know, things never really run fully autonomously. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happens, has, what's happening is managers are getting over that concern because you know, the reliability of the equipment is getting better and the uh, ability for that gear to run um, uninterrupted reliably is, is just getting better and better all the time. All right. And then we've definitely considered production side of things. How can that benefit? But of course, there's supporting field services. How are those people looking to benefit in the future, or are they doing it right now by using this autonomous technology? Well, there are all kinds of companies now that uh, who, you know, for, for dint of the, uh, the their service model, have embraced automation tools into the service model. So a good, a good example of that is, uh, is security and uh, protection services now use aerial drones to fly the perimeters to see what uh, what's happening at the perimeter level of a facility. Uh, drones to uh, go up and do stack inspections or inspections from the air to see whether uh, you know stacks uh, need to be repaired or damaged, uh, painted, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, so, so the drones are the service. There's a whole service industry that that specializes in this whole area. If you go to an oil and gas trade show these days, well, under pandemic probably not, but I can tell you in February, <laughs> if you went to a an oil and gas trade show uh, of substance, there would always be a handful of of drone uh, operators who are there offering a subsea and, and aerial drone technology for, uh, for for oil and gas. What you didn't see was um, the the kind of drones yet to do things like um, uh, say uh, there's a great video on on YouTube you can check out about uh, Boston Dynamics, which is a robot company. Uh, they have a, a, a quadruped robot which uh, serves as a tool companion to a field worker. You can dispatch the robot to go collect tools for you, and, and it can go up and down stairs and open doors and all the, the sort. Of, it kind of serves as a companion to the to the to the worker. That kind of technology is still pretty novel in the industry. Mm -hmm. No, I'd love to see that too because those robots are hardy. I've seen them abuse those son of a guns pretty bad, and they take it and they still keep going. Yeah, they have to be. They have to be robust. I mean, that's going to be one of the requirements in the in the environment is that those robots have to be pretty secure. Definitely. And then in the past, in this series, we've talked about a few technologies that might pair really well with automated technology. I mean, between AI combined with automated technology and industrial Internet of Things and cloud computing, which of those three areas looks to benefit the most, or are they all wild? Hold? Do they hold wild potential? Well, in, in fact, most autonomous technologies or robots will already be a combination of uh, some sort of set of sensors. Mm -hmm. So if you think about an aerial drone, it has to know its altitude and its speed and its pitch. It has to have sensors to detect wind speed and, and uh, air pressure and the, and the temperature. Uh, and so it already has sensors on it. Uh, in order for the sensors, the, the drone to take, uh, take into account the, um, the ability to 
um, maneuver in that real world. It has to take the data that the sensors are giving it and interpret it somehow and then make a call. Okay, do I, do I accelerate? Do I speed up? Do I, do I, how, do I, how do I navigate? That requires some kind of uh, artificial intelligence to interpret all of that data and process it. So a robot actually already encapsulates a bit of data, sensor technology, artificial intelligence, and of course, the mechanical apparatus to take all of that data and apply it and do real things like dip, go left, go right, go up, go down. And so the, the, they, uh, the think of an autonomous technology that does not have that is not pl plausible in my mind. It's all part of the, part of the package. The thing is that those, those technologies themselves are all evolving independently on their own. And uh, it's autonomous technologies that bring them together to create uh, uh, a, a robotic uh, uh, solution. Yeah, and the more episodes re we record, the more I see that line is blurred, and you can't really have one without the other. They all make use of each other. And yes, and, and the, as I think about it, the the way the to think about a robot is uh, it is the collection of these things, and then it carries out real work. But the underlying building blocks, data, sensor technologies, uh, interpretation technologies, cloud computing networks, uh, all have to also exist in in, in, in for your robot to have. Uh, a measure of of uh, productive success in your in your environment. Can't you can't have you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And if I'm looking, I'm a venture capitalist. I'm looking to drop some money into a new sector, new business. You know, I love my hypotheticals. Let's say I want to get into automated technologies. Would a good place to start be maybe somewhere in the realm of midstream? I'm thinking. I imagine it'd be pretty easy to take advantage of robots versus people to deliver a lot of these refined chemicals or even just stock crude. Yeah, it's very, uh, I mean, the business case for adoption of uh, these technologies does vary by sector and, and what drives your business. And uh, so uh, in the case of um, uh, companies that are doing a turnaround, uh, and, and midstream companies are all, all, all go through some sort of turnaround cycle or a maintenance cycle somewhere in the, in the run of a year or every other year, the application of robots to some of the work of the turnaround is a very fast and and, and easy to justify use case. Uh, and so you don't have to you don't have to go too far to kind of to see the potential of of um, using a drone to send uh, uh, send a uh, camera and eyes up onto your fields uh, so that you can inspect it from the air. So very 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 useful service. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the replacement of people in various other roles. Uh, construction equipment, trucks, forklifts, many of these things are already proven in other domains and, and have yet to come into oil and gas. And uh, so uh, the early adopters will be looking at uh, how do I use uh, the uh, autonomous technologies in uh, transportation services of some kind. Uh, but um, but you'd be you'd be out on the edge if you're doing that because that technology is still not yet not yet um, in in wide use. So there's a fair risk profile associated with that. So definitely a young technology. But let's say five ten years down the road, coming. a network like this that's going to grow virally, right? If you don't need well, someone is... to sit and read a gauge and push buttons, what do we do for say the truckers in areas where forty percent fifty percent of their economy is dependent on moving a lot of these materials when you've replaced? all of that job function with a truck as sensors, cloud computing does all of the thing a human can do for less. Yeah, this is a major social challenge we're going to have to address. I do not have all the answers or, or even some of the answers for that. Uh, the, the glib argument is, oh, well, my truck driver will go off and become a coder. Mm, 
I, I don't see that. Uh, there, there, there's, there is a, um, there is a, a job to be done to maintain these technologies as they get rolled out. But I don't see that as the job of the, the individual who's driving for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so even that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. Uh, to to visualize um, with 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 ease how these different kinds of jobs are going to um, are going to be uh, uh, displaced, and then what's going to happen to the humans who are working in those jobs? But the signposts are very very clear. There's a number of of heavy trucking companies already running driverless trucking pilots throughout the United States to try and figure this out because the prize is huge. It's it's enormous. And uh, but what hasn't equally what I'm watching is the public sector side, which should take to have some concern about the human resources, uh, is not is not keeping pace with the, these technologies and how they are going to disrupt society. Mm-hmm. And I know you're not an anthropologist by trade, so sorry for that left field curveball. But even so, I get, I get asked all the time, what, what, what is your answer for the, the human talent problem? And, um, you know, I don't have an answer like uh-huh. it's. Uh, that we we just have to be smart about this and and be and be thinking about it because you know as I, as I like to say we we have thirty year old technology that's been running in you know, oil and gas for three decades. Mm-hmm. We also have employees who've been part and parcel of that operation for thirty years, and so when you start making changes to one, you have to be thinking about well how am I how am I dealing with the other like what what is my response going to be, and simply firing people isn't isn't socially acceptable. So <laughs> there has to be some kind of balance here that, that, um, that, that, that uh, both companies, society, governments uh, come to grips with to, to deal with the arrival of this technology. Yeah, definitely tough from a people side of things, but maybe you have a better answer about the data side of things. Once we start implementing these networks at a viral rate, I imagine there's going to be digital boatloads of data that we have to sort through. So how does an organization even begin to manage, say, a single field with a field full of ambient pump units. Yeah, and this is uh, it, uh, underscores probably the, one of the key issues with with digital. It's not as simple as I buy this technology, drop it into my operations, and suddenly everything is great. It doesn't work that way, and and this is the reason why oil and gas com- companies, in particular, if you think about the upstream, have to embrace these tools not as single standalone things, but as part of a system, part of an integrated system. And, and, and to, your, to your exact question, how are you going to deal with the flood of data that comes out of the, the sensor sets? How are you going to provide for security over, over the uh, uh, robots? Um, you can imagine you know, if, if your security uh, provisions aren't up to industrial grade, what happens when some hacker takes over your robot? Like, is, is, do you really want to be in that position? Um, to, today, you know, a hacker breaks into your, your computerization back office and takes a bunch of customer addresses. It's, you, you're you're, you're going to really hear about it in the press, and your stock is going to take a beating. What's mm-hmm. going to happen when some 16-year-old in a basement hacks into your <laughs> mechanical robot yep. and starts, you know, doing a, a running havoc with it? The, the companies have to think about this stuff, and that's why I say it's not just about I do this one thing and everything's going to be great. You have to look at it as a system. Yeah, definitely lots of planning required in advance, but is that something that's scaring companies right now? They don't want to be the first person who gets made an example of when something does go wrong? 
I think in the case of robots, there is now enough track record for certain classes of robots that the risk is, is now being uh, uh, certainly not eliminated completely because you know, that's just not practical, but has been mitigated significantly. And, and those robots uh, we've already touched on. Back office robot process automation is one. Uh, the use of subsea submersible drone technology going underwater to inspect and, and, and uh, make uh, repair facilities is two. Uh, three is the aeronautic uh, variety, the, the flying around kind. Uh, a specific a fourth kind of technology uh, that I would highlight is, uh, is the autonomous uh, haulers. So these are the heavy-duty dump trucks, the kind that carry, you know, deliver 400 tons of, of uh, material that you see in mine sites. That technology has already come to the oil and gas mines in North America and Canada. Uh, so the, the big mines, uh, there are already uh, uh, several of them, like th three for sure, are already have shifted out of the human driver version of heavy hauler and are now being run by effectively um, remote controlled robot operated uh, haulers that are you know, managed by uh, uh, a control room in another city. And so there's no driver at the wheel for that, that technology. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of, of um, robotic uh, tool that, that is already in, already in place on, and it happens to be driving, just doing it in a mine site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So plenty of use cases, but also lots Why? of planning required. How can management make sure that once everything's planned, they're ready to move, they're ready to mobilize, how do you deliver this to the employees that are going to be working with it? Because if I'm a production engineer and you come into my office and go, all right, we have ambient technology now, we are not going to really need you to do 80% of what you did before, I'm going to feel threatened. Uh, yeah, there's no question about that. And, and so having the right communication message is, is, is indeed the right way to think about it. Uh, is, is what, how, do I, how do I communicate the story? Uh, the, the, the analogy or the, the, the way I would think about it with, with those employees uh, might go something along these lines. 80% uh, of our production typically comes from just 20% of our wells. Pareto's law. What that also means is that 20% um, of our production is coming from 80% of our wells. And that 80% of our wells does not get nearly enough human attention to run them to their optimal level. And so these robotic tools are going to help us move the performance of all of those wells up to where they are at least all operating at, at, at the, the, the uh, higher than average level for, for the, that platform of wells that we, we had before. Mm -hmm. So you're lifting the, the, the worst performers up at least to the average as best as you can with these tools. What this does is it frees up the humans who normally would have been running around trying desperately to keep the 80% running, allows them to concentrate now on moving the whole average up for everybody. And that actually creates um, uh, 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 more jobs and more demand for human horsepower to supervise those wells at that, that higher performance curve. That should be very appealing to employees. I see that as not a, you're going to, quote, lose your job. Rather, I'm going to remove from your day-to-day -day the, no the nonsense and noise from the, of the lowest common denominator of our, well, of our performing wells and free, free up your time so that you can help move the whole thing up and improve the performance of everything. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't be interested in that as a solution? Like, uh, that's, that's where I think that it's all in how you frame the narrative and, and explain to people where you're going with this 
technology and what is going to be the, the, uh, the, the reason for the employees to get excited about it. And I think it has to be a story about growth, about better jobs, about uh, less drudgery and less routine, m more greater use of human, the inherent human capabilities of creativity, teamwork, leadership, problem solving, judgment, all that sort of fun stuff. And that's much more energizing than, oh, your job is to dump data into a spreadsheet for the rest <laughs> of your life. Yeah, so it's definitely possible to train people to be accepting of this change. You just got to be sensitive to it. And maybe you should yeah, look exactly. to get into politics. You might be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Happy so, right where I am. Hey, if it's not, if it ain't broke, right, don't fix it. But C-level management people who may be listening to this podcast, they're looking to maybe implement these technologies into this network, automated technology. Do they want to completely switch career tra trajectories at this point, or how can they pitch this to the uppers or the board to try and take advantage? Well, I think the uh, the, the signposts are that this these these robotic tools um, are now both offering uh, tremendous potential uh, in in fields beyond oil and gas, and they're moving incredibly quickly. Uh, Tesla's cars are a case in point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, four or five years ago, the idea that Tesla would offer cars that would self-drive, self-park, navigate on highways and so forth was laughable. And yet now they're here and all of the other automotive companies are following. Well, in behind them are all the truck companies. They're also following because the technology to drive a car isn't dramatically on a highway, isn't dramatically different from driving a truck on a highway. Yep. And so the, the technology is coming and to ignore it is not sound. It's not a good strategy. Uh, so the, the right answer, from my mind, back to, to what should management do is, one, be curious about it, understand what it can do. Uh, to, to the extent that you can, participate in trials and experiments, at least get exposed to where the technology is evolving. There's lots of trials of this technology, particularly in the U.S. There's lots of trials. Uh, see about getting uh, participating in them in some fashion. So at least you can understand what this is going to do to your, your company and your operations. And then I can also see how other people might be scared. What about technical field personnel, even students? Should they view this as a point to jump ship and train in something else? Or should they just kind of be cognizant and maybe be <laughs> apt at using this technology? Because it's scary. Uh, well, it's a, it's a very interesting question to ask. And I know lots of students are asking this question. In fact, just two weeks ago, I was on a late night LinkedIn exchange with a student <laughs> in Egypt. Uh -huh. uh, who had just finished her her studies in petroleum engineering and and was and was been, has been unable to find work in Egypt in in petroleum, and uh, the question she said was, should I go into robotics? And my advice to her at the time was, and I think it's still still the same, uh, uh, the the uh, robot industry is going to grow like this, and there will be interest in uh, what I'd call specific industrial applications of that technology. In other words, robots in oil and gas. If you understand both of those, wow, you're going to be in short supply because the demand for robots is going to pull those robot experts into all kinds of different industries, let alone oil and gas. But if you're in oil and gas and you understand robots, you're going to be in demand. If you're in oil and gas and you do not understand robots, I think you do face some risks. But I would say that you face the same risk as, you know, you don't understand cloud computing and you think data is a waste of time and the Internet of Things doesn't relevant to you. And <laughs> you're, if that's your attitude, you're going to be at risk oh, no matter what. But at that point. You're going to be left behind. But my, my advice to her was, um, you know, if you're, if you're short of jobs today in petroleum, there's no downside at all to going over and studying one of these digital tools to try and marry up those two domain expertise mm -hmm. levels.
For those of you listening to this podcast, I cannot stress enough. It is time to get with the times because choosing not to do it is not going to help. And the best way to expose yourself, hey, Bits, Bites, and Barrels, which you can buy from Amazon.com as a physical copy. You can listen to the audiobook if you're a very busy person. It's on Audible or, if you're like me, like doing a little bit of reading on the Kindle so you don't have to carry a boatload of books, throw this on there, peep into it a couple times a week, and you will grow. And for only $10 at max, I mean, come on. What is there to lose? Nothing at all. No downside. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you again for sitting through this episode with us. Hopefully you learned a little something. Hopefully you had some fun. And if you're listening and felt like you missed out on some stuff, lots of visual cues. Be sure to check it out on YouTube.com as well, Rare Petro Podcast. And I think that ties it up for the episode. Thanks again for joining us, Jeffrey. You're welcome. And until next time. Take care, everybody.